Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Today we are going to hear about what it's like to not only work in a COVID vaccine clinic, but also work with COVID testing to do phone calls, public health education, and to really provide a lot of different roles as a frontline worker. I have nursing expert Claire Santos in the studio with us. Thank you for joining us this evening. Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Kathy. Now, you know, one of the big areas that you've got a significant expertise in that, boy, isn't this important these days, is the role of accurate health communication. Now, you've studied and been in the nursing field for many years. What are some of the unique jobs you've held in the past, and how has that helped you to be a master communicator? Moving to Hawaii was the big game changer for me because I needed to learn pigeon. And fortunately, my husband is a local boy, so he helped me with that. But I needed to learn to communicate with different people of different education levels, different cultures. This all is key to proper communication here in Hawaii. Now, we've had a lot of people get some misinformation and get their information from various websites or internet sites that may not be the most accurate. When you think about ways that people can improve health communication, there's the person talking, there's also the person receiving. So let's sort of talk about the person talking. You know, I do this all day in my office. What are ways that I can be more effective in how I express things or explain things to patients? You need to come to their literacy level which we say just generically be about fifth grade, but you also must absolutely consider their health literacy. Understanding, with all due respect, people who have PhDs in sciences don't know a thing about their bodies. So it's not a a point of shame for anyone. It simply isn't part of their education and training. So health literacy must be the, the major factor in your communication. And I'll give you an example of that with all due respect to Dr. Libby Char. The other day on the news, she was discussing monoclonal antibodies, and she said it's not a panacea. And I said, you just lost your entire audience. Even I had to look up the word. Panacea. (laughs) There you go. So when speaking to patients, keep it simple is still the the best way to go, and then receive their questions and and answer. You have to be as good a listener, if not better listener, than a message sender so that you're helping to educate the person. Yeah, I like to think about things I know nothing about. So (laughs) there's so many things. Car mechanics, I know nothing about it. So I think if I was trying to ask a car mechanic questions, what are some of the basics that I would need to know? You know, how do you check your oil other than it dings in a light in your car? So I need to look at it from that perspective of the other person maybe having such a basic knowledge, they they may not even understand some of the things that for me might be second nature. So, you know, I just think of a topic, again, I'm an idiot about, and that makes it easy. But what makes a good health information receiver? Because I think you know, someone can try their best to communicate, but it also takes two people to to understand a topic. And what are some ways that someone receiving information can help to improve their understanding? 
we ask people to do their homework. Unfortunately, the internet, you start clicking on links and you go deeper and deeper into the crazy zone where people unwittingly end up at websites that have no scientific basis for anything. But it's written in a, a level of language they understand and they buy into it. And next thing you know, you're fighting the misinformation and frankly, disinformation. So we want people to do their homework, but we want to direct them to the correct places, the Department of Health website, the CDC, the World Health Organization, the the organizations that are doing the research and following all the information, and they have excellent communicators there who can spell things out for people. Well, and that's really good because I like the idea of doing your homework, but also not being afraid to ask questions. You know, like you mentioned, you can have a high educational level in various fields, but when it comes to your own body, you may not have the same ability to utilize your day job and apply it to what's going on with, you know, your your toe pain or your ankle hurting or your back giving you problems. So, you know, just being open to asking questions, even if you think it might be embarrassing, hey, it's probably not. And it also helps me when patients ask me questions again and again to kind of understand what their level is so that next time when I speak to someone else about the same condition, I can kind of start with that level of basics and go, you know, everybody always asks me this question, so let me start with that. So I think it's this good give and take. Now, you mentioned a couple of good websites that have great patient information, and they have portals where physicians can go in and also patients can go in. What could make that something that is a little bit more accessible? Like, you know, often I think about there's a new mode in medicine to allow patients to read their medical records. And I'm all for it. I think it's a great idea. But then if we use some of the terminology that we're used to, that may just not really help a patient who's reading the record. Are there other ways that we can improve health communication so that even in someone's personal medical record, they could understand it better and know what the plan is and know how they can implement that in their lives? You know, sometimes that just comes down to having a translator or interpreter involved. You have different cultures. You have people who are not comfortable discussing certain things about their body. So there's that respect and understanding, um, that uh, mindfulness of what their situation is, and then working with them what would help you the most. You know, We always need to remember that patient is the decision maker, the center of the universe for us, and how would it best help you to discuss this with me? Because a lot of people, they're not on the smartphones or not on the internet. They're getting information in their cultural circle. Um, it's another really good point that yeah. sometimes we forget. I mean, I might be addicted to my smartphone, Googling everything, but that doesn't mean that everybody is. And you're right. You may get information from your auntie, your friend, or you have that person you know who had this experience, so you wonder how that might apply to you. So I think that's a really good point of knowing the cultural and also personal influences around someone. So that gets us to talking a little bit about your current experience. You've been working in a COVID vaccine clinic, a COVID testing clinic. You've been doing contact tracing. What are some of the things, let's talk about COVID testing first. When we think about what you've experienced through this pandemic, what are some of the common myths that go on with COVID testing that you've experienced and had to explain to folks? 
you know, when when the testing first started, people literally thought we were reaching back to their brain with those swabs. Um, there was yeah, just, I had one of those, and that was really not fun. Yeah, there there was a lot of confused communication in the beginning, and people just kind of filled in the blanks best they could. So they, they feared it, and um, I, I think they came around a lot better. We did get better with health communication from the Department of Health and explaining to people what this was about and how it detects the virus is not 100%, and it's only in this time frame window. Um, but as we know right now, testing needs to continue so that we know where we're at um, in the community. So people have settled down more now that you can buy kits at Long's or whatever store you buy your, um, you can buy test kits at Safeway. You can do it at home now, follow the instructions. So we've made it more user-friendly for everyone to. Well, that's important for folks who, you know, want to know, is it safe to go to work or safe to go to places? All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and you're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Claire Santos. She is a nursing expert and has played so many different roles in the healthcare environment recently. She's become a communicator, but also educator, running a vaccine clinic, doing COVID testing, and a frontline worker. When we come back, we are going to talk some more about What is the testing and what are some of the issues coming up with availability of vaccination? We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and Claire Santos is in the studio with me, and she is fully vaccinated, as am I. That is part of the reason why you are in studio today. So let's talk a little bit. Quickly, I just want to review some of the COVID testing, and then we'll talk about vaccination. You know, when we talked about testing, the very first testing was this nasopharyngeal swab. That one really went to the back, what we call the nasopharynx. And the reason it went to that area is because the testing materials we were using at that time required that you get a sample from those cells that are in the back of the nose area. And then subsequently, there's other ways people can get, can be tested. There is a nasal swab, which is not going back as far, and that was used for some of the travel testing So there's different mechanisms for people to get tested. Should they fear it? It's not really painful these days. It's not, it doesn't have to be such a big, scary thing to do. When you are administering or when you're working in COVID testing, what are some of the ways that you can reassure people that it doesn't really go back so far, it's going to cause a problem? You know, the worst feeling when you test yourself or have the swab go in is the same as if you got water up your nose, that little burning sensation. And that's the worst of it. And that's what I tell people. I'd say you probably hurt yourself more when you picked your nose one time, you know, just make it real, make it humorous. Um, Doesn't all have to be dead serious. And uh, I'm glad we have the more shallow testing available now because it's not as scary. We guide you through it verbally and you do it yourself. So you're in charge of your discomfort there. And uh, that seems to put people at ease. They're in control. They're holding the swab. I would think that would really help a lot. And some of the home test kits are also doing that nasal swab. So it's not going really far back. So if you're concerned and you feel as though you need to be tested, there's a lot of sites to be tested. They're all over the state. 
And there are ways that people can get free testing or workplace sponsor testing or whatever the case may be. So these days, I think testing is fairly available, would you say? Oh, yeah. We just opened up a few more, right? Blaisdell has testing now, and I forget the second new site. And there's, you know, even the pharmacies can do testing. So there's a variety of different options. Now, let's talk a little bit about vaccination because, you know, it's funny. I remember back when the vaccines first became available last December, January, we started vaccinating those people who were older and then they went to, you know, frontline healthcare workers. And as they went through the age brackets, we would always have people who were trying to get in line to get their vaccine. They were very excited about being vaccinated in the beginning. And I remember telling folks, you know, just wait a few months and not wait personally, but realize that there's going to be so much vaccine available that, you know, it's not going to be as big of a line. So you don't have to stand in line for hours to get a vaccine. You know, you don't have to be first. You could be third or fourth day, and you would probably have much less of a difficulty doing that. And then different medical centers ran excellent vaccination campaigns. HPH did one. Castle did one. Kaiser did one. Queens did one. All the major medical centers started offering vaccination. And now you can get it at pharmacies. You could go to Target. You could go to other places. The vaccine is fairly available at this point in time. Would you say that there's plenty of opportunities for people who haven't yet been vaccinated to come in and get vaccinated? Oh, yeah. You could get it anywhere. Even the supermarkets are saying, walk in and we'll give you, we'll get you started. Sure. And for those people who haven't yet been vaccinated and they've decided to do so, whether it be a personal decision or they need to to keep their job or their family member has been uh, infected or affected by COVID, you can still go in. Nobody's going to judge you and say, what What you took so long? I mean, there's there's open access because we want people to participate in vaccination. And coming back to health communication, There was mistrust of the vaccine. Health communication failed to explain why the process is faster to get your emergency use authorization. Complete failure there, which gave rise to the mistrust. Um, We needed to correct that. What should we have said? We should have explained the process and how it's been shortened for years. This is not a new thing. We didn't just cut corners. Even I, and I do get involved in research for a couple of uh, companies, I thought, what do you mean this is happening so quickly? What corners did you cut? Even I had that suspicion. So you can, I can understand how the general population would feel like, you know, this is all fake and they're ramming this down our throats or in our arms or however you want to look at it. We needed to correct that and explain step by step what that approval process, that clinical research process is and why it's shorter now because we have technology and and we can process data faster. There's perfectly simple logical explanation for why it is a faster process to allay all of that fear, just erase it. And, you know, we kind of dropped the ball there big time. So if you were to have the opportunity to speak to yourself when you were a skeptic, what would you have said? I was a skeptic. I was waiting for the Johnson and Johnson, so I only had to get one shot. But then I realized I'm in healthcare. I have a duty to my patients to protect myself and protect them in the process. So what I would say to people is, you know, go to this CDC website, wherever, 
They will explain step-by-step what the clinical research process is, what the approval process is, why it's, it's, we're saying it's shorter. They, they really just messed up saying we can approve things much faster now. That just scared everybody. So give everyone the steps in the process and, and say the reason it's shorter is because of this. We have computers. We can process data. We, you know, we don't have to add by hand anymore. <laughs> you know, use the abacus. <laughs> well, and I, the other aspect that I think a lot of people didn't know is that the mRNA technology has been around for 10, 20 years. It just hadn't been applied yet in a clinical setting for humans, but there had been trials with this with a variety of different types of potential vaccinations for several years. So it was a new application of technology that had already been fairly well researched. And here we are, you know, vaccination is available. It's FDA approved now. The Pfizer vaccine has been. And we are looking at hopefully getting approval for kids so that they can be vaccinated because I know there's a lot of concern from parents and schools and potential exposure. And we're also looking at booster shots. And that's something that I think the FDA is going to have a meeting about later this week. That's going to be on September 17th. And then maybe next week we will know some more in the medical profession about whether or not booster shots are going to be available. And the way that, you know, I explain booster shots to a lot of my patients is, you know, we booster tetanus shots every 10 years. And we do that because we know that there is potentially uh, less immunity as time goes on. So when they look at some of the data for booster shots, it's going to be something that, you know, we don't know yet if it's going to be more than one. But at this point, they're looking at some of the same scientific data that we just talked about, computerized and looking at this from a broader population perspective. And I think if you follow the science on it, then you'll be able to see how they come to the conclusion they do and what their suggestions would be on whether or not this is a necessity and whether or not people should be excited or get in line and start working on boosters. Hey, I was already, you know, October 20th would be my booster shot day. And you do a little bit more reading and the World Health Organization is asking people, hold off. We have entire countries that haven't gotten their first shot yet. We're going to have more and more variants if we don't get everyone immunized. So let these countries catch up. We have some data coming in now that maybe we don't need the booster right now. That's all got to be discussed and evaluated by the, you know, forces greater than mine. Um, But we need to wait and see on that booster shot thing. But if if it's necessary, we need to jump on it. Sure. Right. That's when the same bodies that have been looking at the ideas of the vaccination to begin with and approval, et cetera, are really going to take a look at some of the information. So my only hope is, you know, we started the show talking about health communication. I hope that when they come to their decision or their recommendation that they communicate it well. I can only really just cross my fingers and hope that that is the case. Well, and and on the health communication perspective, sometimes it's really not that. That's the culprit. You know what the culprit often is? A lot of people are afraid of needles. 
So please, whoever's listening, if you are afraid of needles, we have a cot available for you and you can lay down, chill out. We'll talk story and you won't even know you got the shot. (laughs) Well, there you go for the needle phobic. There are always options. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to talk about the role that healthcare workers are playing in this pandemic and what are some ways in which our education of nurses can really help to improve with some of our staffing shortages. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have Claire Santos in the line. Claire, you've been in the field of nursing for how many, dare I say, decades now? Am I revealing yeah, your four, age? Four decades. Four decades. So you have seen a lot of changes in the profession of nursing and how it's modernized and how the educational system has tried to keep up with that. One of the things that we're looking at right now in the hospitals is trying to make sure that we have enough staffing. I know that FEMA provided some staffing and also provided some opportunities for folks to get uh, additional nurses from the mainland to assist. What are some of the ways that we can utilize some of our own current nurses that are being educated? And are we giving enough new graduates a chance to learn, particularly since we're seeking some folks from from elsewhere? How do we how do we incorporate some of the future education of our of our next generation of nurses while we're trying to keep everything together. You know, one of the things that impressed me as I'm working around these different groups and different clinics is the number of new graduate licensed registered nurses I'm meeting who can't get an acute care position in Hawaii. I don't understand. I just don't. When I was new here, I was a preceptor for UH nursing students. We had preceptorships. Queens had courses that new nurses could take to learn things. That investment in local nurses seemed to have dropped off somewhere along the line, and they either need to go to work in long-term care or go to the mainland where, you know, I've helped them write their resumes and stuff, and they're winding up in Ohio, New York, Florida, Oregon, Washington, all over Vegas. They're all leaving where hospitals will invest in them and their education. We need to do that here. We needed to do this a year ago, bring in the new graduates to work alongside the experienced nurses, get their chops. You know, this is where you learn to be a nurse. This crisis is going to make or break a lot of people. Um, It's a great training ground for new nurses, not to, you know, put that lightly, but this is where you learn to really be a nurse in situations like this. And it would have supplied a backup to the experienced nurses. They're not alone with the patient all the time. They have help with a a licensed registered nurse. This should have been in place over a year ago. And it it just didn't happen. So now instead of our local people taking, uh, our local nurses taking care of our local people, culturally, language-wise, custom-wise, we've got nurses traveling in from the mainland who know nothing about the culture and the language, who many of them are burned out themselves because they've been deploying for a year. So, you know, this is a big gift from FEMA, so to speak. It's federal money, but we have our own people. We should have gotten involved and trained and working alongside experienced nurses, and I I can't for the life of me understand why that hasn't happened. So that partnership of the more experienced nurse with one that is just out of 
school and has recently gotten their license. That could be a way to help offload some of the stress for some of the long-term nurses that are working so significantly on the floors, but it also could provide a learning opportunity. So that partnership might be a great way to integrate the learning experience, similar to what happens, you know, I think back to medical school and you do three years of a residency training and you're on a team. You start off as a first year, you move to second year, you move to third year, but there's always an attending who is in charge of the team. So you have that natural progression of how you would learn in a real-world clinical setting. They don't seem to have that same opportunity for nurses after they finish school, but there's a lot of clinical work that they do in school so that they'd be familiar with the clinical environment. They just need a little bit extra of that level of training to bring it to real world. And we used to do that. As I said, I was a preceptor. We used to bring in the new nurses and and work with them, and they'd have maybe a six-month preceptorship to learn the ropes, and somewhere along the line that's disappeared. I, I honestly just don't understand it. How could we fix it? Bring in the new nurses. Bring in those new graduates. Um, align them. Because you please keep in mind, these nurses, the experienced ones, are forever changed. You know, they're, they're in a situation. I was a burn unit nurse for 10 years. That was all trauma, tragedy, you know, long-term patients who then would die I have some insight into what these COVID ICU nurses are getting into. They are forever changed. They need the support. And nurses love teaching other nurses. We love to bring in a new one and, and you know have them next to us working with us and, and learning the ropes. That's how we roll, and, and we know that. Um, I think it's not profitable for the hospitals, to be completely honest with you, but we it's an emergency situation. We need to invest in our own people here. We have the resources here. Let's use them instead of having them go to other states. Well, you know, and you mentioned earlier the cultural aspect of understanding your local community. And I know when people move to the islands, there's particularly, you know, when physicians come to the islands, there's always a concern that they may not stay. What's going to be their draw? What's going to keep them here? It's a high cost of living. Reimbursement may not be as much here as it would be elsewhere considering cost of living. But when we find out that they have like either they themselves are from the islands or they have a spouse who is from the islands or they have family here, that tends to mean that they're more longitudinal in their and in their potential of staying here. And it sounds like that's something we also have with a lot of the nurses. We've got a great educational opportunity through our schools. And because they're local homegrown, they would have the the tendency to want to stay and continue to serve our local population, but also understand some of the cultural nuances. Because you're right, sometimes we may not understand what happens in certain communities if we're not part of that community. And having someone who understands that could really help to further not just, you know, their treatment, but also, as you mentioned earlier, health communication. How do you explain something to someone when they may have a primary language that is different than your own? And how do you check to make sure they understand it? So I, I would agree. I think if there's, a, if there's a way to change that dynamic, I would love to see it happen. And that way we could really be more self-sufficient. I think the other thing we've discovered here is, you know, over the last few years, the number of acute care hospital beds has declined a little bit because people were not staying in the hospital as long. And so now we're seeing, hey, we've got to keep an eye on our bed capacity, because that's another issue that this pandemic has brought to light. 
This is a situation where, again, the experienced nurses could use the backup of the, st- of the new nurses. And I'm not saying students. We have licensed, registered nurse new graduates who could be of tremendous value right now. And they want to. They're, it's hurting them to not be included. And that's just wrong. Well, we are so inclusive in so many different ways in the island. So I do hope we take a close look at that so we can really help to change that and provide those opportunities to keep people who want to stay here serving the local population here that's where they grew up and where they're from. We've got about a minute, Claire. What would you like to share during some of that time about ways that we can improve our current COVID pandemic situation? What would be your recommendation? You know, if there's anything I could do to convince the first responders to please come and get vaccinated, whatever you want. You want free dinner, you want to lay down on the cot and, you know, not even know you got your shot, whatever it will take. We have a duty to our patients to protect them and and to not do harm. And we that means we need to be vaccinated just as we have been with all our other vaccinations. So please reconsider and come get your shot. We'll come to your house. Somebody's doing house calls. (laughs) All right. You've heard it from Claire Santos. Thank you so much for joining us today. You play so many different essential roles in the healthcare community. I really appreciate your expertise. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on Hawaii Public Radio. Our engineer, David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. See you next week. (laughs) 